Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, my name's Adam from Toronto, Ontario. And I subscribe to the Creative Control Patreon because I feel that uh, at the end of the day, uh, there are very few people in the industry who are able to consistently get the kind of quality interviews out of very diverse subjects of many creative stripes and disciplines, as Vish does pretty well on every episode of the podcast. It's a no-brainer to me that I want to support this when you factor that in to uh, all of the bonus content you get on Patreon and you know, it's a listener-supported podcast, so uh, I want to keep the uh, great content coming. So that's why you should also support Creative Control on Patreon. To make your flexible monthly donation to Creative Control, please visit patreon.com slash Control today. Desmond Cole is an award-winning journalist, broadcaster, and activist currently based in Toronto. His latest and perhaps most ambitious work to date is a new book called The Skin We're In, A Year of Black Resistance and Power, which was published by Doubleday Books on January 28, 2020, and chronicles 13 consecutive months of anti-black racism in Canada from a contemporary and historical perspective. Desmond returns to this show for an in-depth discussion of this new book and its broader socio-cultural implications and much more. A part of the Entertainment One Network with the support of listeners like you who subscribe to this podcast and spread the word about it and make flexible monthly donations at patreon.com slash creative control plus in-kind support from Pizza Trocadero, The Bookshelf, and Planet Bean Coffee in Guelph and Granddad's Donuts in Hamilton. This is the 529th episode of Creative Control, featuring the outspoken and talented journalist Desmond Cole with your host, me, Vish Khanna. Hi Desmond, how's it going? 
I'm really good, Vish. How are you? I'm well. It's nice to speak with you. As we're speaking, I believe you... you, Where are you right now? Actually, I should start that way. Where are you? I don't want to presuppose I know where you are. (laughs) Um, I am at home, on the couch, feet up. Uh, It's kind of the end of the most grueling part of my book tour. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That's nice. Um, I've been to about eight cities in the last two weeks, and... um, I've had a fantastic time, met a lot of people, done a lot of work promoting and talking about this book and hearing how other people are responding to it, and I am thoroughly exhausted right now. Yes. Well, I, I appreciate your time, and it sounds like you, you've gotten as comfortable as you can be, so that's, yes, all, I that's all I can ask. <laughs> Although, in this dynamic now, it feels like perhaps I'm your therapist. You're just laid, You're on the couch, and I'm here to help you, just to listen. Is that... Is that what's going on? As long as you don't charge what they usually do, then yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I'm with you. I'm with you on that uh, for sure. Now, before we get into this book, you mentioned the tour. You mentioned speaking with people. Can you highlight any surprises, anything that you found heartening about your interactions with people receiving you and this book on the road? I I suppose... Seeing a number of teachers come out to a lot of the different events that I've done or across the country was very interesting. It was a pattern. I thought that I'd, I wouldn't have expected that necessarily, and it just happened over and over and over again. Hmm. And you know, you know when pe- because people come up to get their book signed, and they'll usually say something about themselves. And like, just so often, it was like, "Oh, and I'm a teacher." And and what I heard actually later was that at a couple of these events, like teachers groups actually organized to come together uh, to, to attend the event together. Hmm. And um, that is extremely humbling and important for me because I want people to share this book with students, like for sure. Journalism students, you know, women and gender studies students, black studies students, high school students, Law students, for sure, should read this book. I, I, I want it to be a teaching tool because I did a lot of research. You know, this is a work of journalism. And I have a whole bunch of feelings yeah. <laughs> about the work that's in this book and uh, about the fight that I feel like, that I know that black people are in. Um, but this isn't so much a documentation of all my feelings as it is a work of journalism about Canada. And black experience in this country, it, it took a lot of research and um, a lot of time. And it is really wonderful now for me to think that people will teach it. I feel like when we first talked about this book, the last time you were on this show or the long night talk show thing that we did, it seemed to me that it might be more about your feelings and other people's feelings. And as you're speaking, I find it sort of surprising that you are surprised that teachers would gravitate towards this work because it definitely has a pedagogical, educational, historical aspect, um, anthropological aspect as well. Do you see where I'm coming from there? Like, I, I, I do. You know why I say it, though? It's, it's that when you're at home working alone most of the time when I was writing, I was just alone in a room like I am now. Mm-hmm. You know, you're probably projecting a lot of the time like who's going to read this who's going to think that this is valuable 
And um, I thought a lot about black people in general, because that's really the primary audience for this book. It's, it's, it's black people who are in Canada and who can relate to the things that I'm talking about in the book because they also live them and, and also think about some of the things that come out of these experiences. But to see all these white teachers coming to my events, I suppose, it, it just wasn't in my head when I was working on this book. And I'm really happy that they believe that they can find value in this and hopefully that their students can find value in it. I, I think it's just that white teachers were not my like first audience that I was thinking of when I wrote the book. Like I was thinking about, honestly, when, when I was writing, all the time I was like, how is my community going to respond to this? And in some cases, I was literally thinking about specific groups or specific people and being like, what will they think about this? You know, um, that was who was in my mind. I, I kind of, I want to get to that. I want to get to, that's interesting to me too, that you thought you were writing a book uh, almost uh, as a, as some form of advocacy for the people represented in the book, because my take on it is that the people who most need to read this book might be those white teachers. But like I say, I want to, I want to park this for just a moment mm -hmm. because for those listening, they may not know anything about this book. And I, I, I'm, I'm hoping that maybe first of all, we can, we can, we can get you to summarize what the skin we're in is all about just so that, you know, people who are, what, what's going on? You know what I mean? I just want to catch people up. Can you do that for us? Can you just summarize this book? Sure. The Skin We're In, A Year of Black Resistance and Power, is a chronicle of the year 2017. Every chapter of the book represents one month of the year 2017. And in every chapter, I tell a specific story that either has root in the year 2017 or there's some important action taking place in 2017. And uh, through those stories, each month of the year, I explore the child welfare system in Canada and how it's dealing with black people, our immigration system, our police, um, our cultural celebrations. And I try to give context to each month's story by going back in time and saying so okay this one thing has happened to somebody in the education system but what has the education system say in the province of ontario been doing to black students for the last 20 and 30 years mm -hmm. because mm -hmm. for me as a journalist like we have no hope of understanding the story that i tell about a six-year-old girl who is handcuffed in her elementary school if we don't understand how black students face that kind of discipline, not specifically this incident, but suspension, expulsion, having the police called on them, putting, getting put into English as a second language when they were born in Canada and speak English fluently. Yeah. Um, these are patterns of things that happen to black students all the time, and we have documentation about them. So I don't want to just tell one story about one individual in that month of the year. I'm trying to give a perspective of what our country is consistently producing in terms of outcomes and treatments for black people. Um, there are 13 months in my year because I finish with January 2018. I tell the story of Abdul Abdi and the government of Canada's attempts to deport him mm -hmm. 
and the incredible mobilization led by his family to stop that deportation. I wanted to end on that because it was like, you know, I, w- I was writing the book while these things were happening in, in, in a large part. And that story really, I feel, is so important and ties together so many of the systems that I talk about through the rest of the book. Yeah. And I think ending on January again was symbolically important. And this was something that I came to with my editor, Martha Kenya Forstner. We both kind of came to this idea at the same time in January of 2018 when this was all going down, that this should be an extra chapter of the book. And that symbolizes that just because the year starts anew, we don't erase our memory. We don't erase history. Uh, it's the new year, but it's the same struggle. I, I, so that, yeah. That was, yeah, that was how we tied that up. I found your use of time uh, particularly poignant because one of the uh, one of the key uh, aspects of, of this book uh, in terms of what you're trying to illuminate is the, I think, the inherent ahistoricism in cultural erasure. Like the part of the cultural erasure is to, as you said, it's to to ignore history. So Canadians tend to think we're great, and we, you know we don't compare to the racism of other places because we are. I think one of your points is we we basically are ignoring our history. So when you're talking about a place in sort of remote Nova Scotia that has a history with the slave trade, and and has a history of treating had a history rather of treating. Um, you know the loyalists, the the, the African loyalists in a, in a particular way. You're illuminating this to say this is part of a pattern, and mm-hmm. I, I found that very very that that's a great tool. And then when I think about the book, in terms of the fact that you chose a year, you chose months, you chose time, you chose time as a way of illuminating the struggle of your people. Is that? That's a that's a. You're, uh, am I correct there? That this notion, this relationship between history, a ahist- historical sort of attitudes, I guess, or or activities. There's a connection there, correct? Most definitely. I mean, one of the really prominent things about being Canadian is being almost completely ignorant of our history. We like to talk about the United States. Like, let's just get that out, right? Like. That This is our foil in Canada, always talking about Americans. Who cares what's happening in Canada? Look what the Americans have done today. Look what the president said today. That's that's our country. But do you, and, do you, and then, I, I agree with you. I also, uh, I was just thinking about this as I was finishing your book. Don't you feel like Canada's perception of itself as being less racist than the U.S. really is just a reflection of how the U.S. perceives us? I find that we're very reactionary that way. They all often Americans will say, "Well, you guys don't have that problem up there," and, and I feel like we internalize almost everything America thinks about us as being the facts. Does that make sense? It does, but I will go further, and I would say that it's also so interesting that you know. So, in the very first pages of the book, I quote a black woman; she's a teenager at the time who is at a demonstration, and she and I are speaking to one another. I was doing an interview. This was the tent city demonstration Mm -hmm. in Toronto after the police killed a man named Andrew Loku in 2015. Mm -hmm. The police uh, officer who did that is named Andrew Doyle, but we wouldn't learn that for several years. And at the time after Andrew Doyle took Andrew Loku's life in his apartment building in 2015, we were 
demanding charges for that police officer whose name we didn't know at the time. And uh, the charges never came. And he was not identified to us. People were very angry. And Black Lives Matter Toronto organized a 16-day demonstration outside of police headquarters in Toronto that they called Tent City. Yeah. I was interviewing Michelle Aaron Hopkins at Tent City, and she says to me, you know, they, they try to tell us that it's not America. But she says blackness has, has no borders. You know, like the, the, the funny thing about Canada is that we also pretend that this border between us and the United States is so real. We watch all their TV. Mm-hmm. We follow their politics more than ours. Mm. But then we nevertheless pretend that there's this hard line that everything changes north of the border. It's very magical. Th- it's very magical thinking. And when people like myself and others say like that the state of Canada is a fiction, maybe people think that that's some kind of insult. No, what we're really saying is literally that border does not exist. Yeah, I'm with you. Right? I, and, I, and, yeah. And, and, and so, yes, um, I, do, I do think that we take what the Americans say about us as truth. We're, of course, telling them what to say about us, and they're just politely repeating it back. Isn't Canada like this? How the hell do they know? Right. Hmm. Um, in the same way that how does a white person who tells me it's worse in America when they don't live there and are not black, how the hell do they know? Right. 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 This, this is a shared kind of ignorant cultural practice of just de- describing places that we have no idea about and have never been to and taking the word of maybe, I don't know, a handful of people that we've met in our lives who told us something about that place very generally mm-hmm. and just being like, oh, yeah, that must be. Uh, that must be how it is. But the key here is that this is how Canada dodges talking about itself, right? That's this a, is how we yeah. avoid actually looking into our current politics and into our history. You know, there are like history buffs all over TV in the United States, and there's all these folks talking about their history. We, again, we probably know more about the founding so-called fathers in America than we do about the people who founded this country. We could probably name more heads of state of the United States than we could prime ministers of Canada. I'm sure of it. And these are just basic history things. But that means we also don't have to talk about the history of slavery in Canada. Uh, it means that we don't have to talk about how that legacy of enslaving black people on this land informs all the laws and all of the ways that the state and its institutions view black people. We don't want to talk about that. And as long as we're talking about another country, we never have to. When you're getting into storytelling here and and history, I mean, on the one hand, you're you're bringing us to an examination of our educational institutions. But one of the the things that comes up a lot in this book is the role of the media as a storyteller, as a as a force that can frame things in a certain way. What 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 are you saying about the media in the skin we're in? So when you bring up the A historical, I think that exhibit A is absolutely Canada's media. Canada's media writes stories about experiences of black people and then insists on forgetting what it just wrote about the next day. So we always never really know what's going on with black people. And it's always a surprise in Canada's media. Mm-hmm. It's always uh, um, he said, she said in Canada's media. So no, there's there's not much we can say definitively about black people. We can we can say what's not happening to them in the Canadian media. 
right? Yeah. We can say that they are not as bad as in the United States. We can say that they maybe are not experiencing discrimination as much as they think that they are. And those utterances are in the Canadian media from time to time. Yeah. But like as, you know, people from the continent, from the Caribbean, people who in some cases came here very recently, but in some cases like the Black Loyalists have been here for hundreds of years, there's not much definitive that Canadian media claims to know about Black people. So that becomes really convenient and important because then the insistence on calling out lies uh, and stereotypes, that, that can't be the media's job, right? Because if they don't know anything, if they can't conclude anything about black people, then those stereotypes and lies might be true. Right. I mean, Masai Ujiri leads the Toronto Raptors to victory in the last... This is not in my book, but let's talk, just talk about it for a second. Yeah. He leads the Raptors to victory in the last NBH season. Yeah. The Raptors win the championship. Masai Ujiri is a black man. He's an African. He 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 is hosting Mandela nights here in Toronto during games, and like he's not shy about talking about his identity as a black man and as an African and as an immigrant. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And we apparently celebrate him as a black person and all these other black people who are on this basketball team. But then Masai Ujiri gets uh, banned from the court after his team wins. Right by a police officer in Los Angeles. And the Canadian media hears that Masai Ujiri may have shoved this officer who's inside the stadium to try and get past him. Now, why would he do that when he has every right to be on the court and when there are all hundreds of cameras in the stadium that recorded that he never pushed anybody? But the Canadian media literally was like, yeah, who knows? This is what the allegation is. The allegation is that the guy got shoved. Yeah. And it's because when a black person is alleged to have done anything that fits white people's stereotypes, it's, oh, yeah, that sounds possible. Yeah, really, who knows? Somebody might say, well, Desmond, it's not the job of the media to say one way or the other. But when you write the headline that the allegation is that this happened, and then we don't know what really, you know, you don't, you don't conclude in your story whether or not it happened then you're you're actually leading your audience to think that, well, maybe it did. And then, of course, when it comes out that Masai Ujiri didn't do that, none of the media were like, yeah, 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 that was a total setup and this was really racist and this white officer saying that Masai Ujiri pushed him when, like, there's no evidence of that was really racist. Like, them publicizing it as if it were possible was really racist as well. So they're not going to go back and be like, oh, shit, you know, we're sorry. Yeah, They just move on. And then the next time a black person is alleged to do something that seems violent or antisocial, that's how they report on it. Like, oh, yeah, it seems plausible. So Hmm. that ahistorical approach through that one example, I see it everywhere. I see police officers beating black people and the media saying, well, we don't know what happened. I see uh, police officers terrorizing black people through racial profiling. But I don't see any editorials saying that racial profiling is contrary to Canada's laws, to the norms of Canadian society. I see that from two or three black people in this country who have little columns and little corners of the country. Yeah. But I don't hear it from the mainstream media because the mainstream media can't decide whether what's happening to black people is racist or not. And therefore, there's no opinions 
as there are in so many other things in this country, condemning that kind of activity. The ignorance and the ahistoricism of it all allows people to not take a position or allows them to say, well, but, you know, more than likely, all these status quo assumptions that we have about Canada, that it's more uh, racially tolerant, that black people here have a fair shot, all things being equal, the media will kind of reinforce that. That's probably true, because otherwise the media would be doing everything it could to talk about that. It would be interesting and substantial. But right. yeah, and, and the you, attack on black life in Canada is not interesting or substantial to the Canadian media. Well, they, you enumerate so many case studies of uh, you know so-called self-policing, so to speak, where um, you know police officers are charged with things, but the charges are ultimately dropped. So there's this institutional protectionism that goes on among these organizations, and I guess what you're saying is the the media is complicit. Uh, within these, uh, you, you know, as an authorial force, they are protecting other authorial forces. And that's why these stories sort of die out. And what you've done with this book is not let them die out. You've... That, yeah, that, that's been the that's been the attempt. And I, and I should say something also really important about the media, which is that the media is a corporate entity in Canada. And so we have this very naive assumption that you know, people who started mega corporations like Rogers and Bell and Shaw, that they have our best interests at heart as Canadians in terms of wanting to teach us the realities of our country and wanting to upset and uh, unseat anyone who's doing evil in Canada, like wanting to root out the truth, right? That's yeah. what we believe journalism is supposed to be. So we want to believe that Rogers wants to root out the truth um, about, say, you know, its own business practices that allow it to make money at any cost. Well, that's ridiculous. And then we want to believe, I suppose, that the other two giant media corporations who all kind of collude together to sit on top of this telecommunications throne, that maybe they will do it to their opponents. Like, no, they won't. What's, why do rich people have an interest in taking one another out hmm. when they're all sitting on top of these empires that we're paying into that's what the function of these media companies is is, is to secure their em media empire and it, you know they tell some good stories along the way don't get me wrong yeah um there's a lot of good journalism out there there's a lot of important and you know hard-hitting journalism in canada it's just that when it comes to black people who um are the low-wage labor unit in canada just as we are everywhere else in the world uplifting us from that position doesn't help any of these corporations. So they have to kind of tread carefully and kind of reinforce, as I said, this idea that, you know, ultimately Canada's not that bad, guys. You're kind of complaining a little bit too much, guys. Hmm. And, and, and when we don't see ourselves in, in the actual physical newsroom of the mainstream media, when we don't see black columnists, when the reporters that have existed in some of these major outlets are taking the buyout and leaving the industry... Well, then there's even less of a chance that these stories are going to be told. But there, you, by the same measure, you do outline a few instances where the efficacy of the, like Black Lives Matter Toronto, like the, I, I think of the the episode you recount about Black Lives Matter Toronto and Pride, Toronto Pride. Yes, there are instances in this book where the 
the, the protesting, the, the fighting actually has some efficacy. You, you also outline instances, so many instances of lip service, right, where Mayor John Tory says he's going to do something to reverse a, a negative practice. And then a few months later, you say, well, then he just shirked on that. He, he didn't do what he said he was going to do. At the same time, I, I want to try to stick to this hopeful, <laughs> hopeful uh, argument, I suppose, about the efficacy. You would agree that the only thing to do, given the precedence and the success rate, is to fight, is to highlight the things you're highlighting in the book and for these groups to work irrespective of how the media portrays them in their struggle. Is that fair? Of course. So, yeah, let's take the example of Black Lives Matter Toronto and the, their disruption in 2016 of the Pride Parade. That chapter in the book opens with BLMTO returning one year after their disruption, right, mm-hmm. to the 2017 parade and everybody being like, are they going to show up again and what are they going to do? They disrupted the parade last time. And I just felt like the if you ask somebody on the street, what was that demonstration about? No matter who they are, no matter what part of the country they're in, if they heard about it and you asked them, what was that about? I think most people would honestly answer to you, oh, Black Lives Matter Toronto didn't want the police in the pride parade, so they stopped the parade. And that is just such a small sliver of the truth of what that was really about. And it was what white people could understand it to be about. And so they decided to focus on that one thing to the exclusion of everything else. And again, that includes the media. Black Lives Matter Toronto had nine demands when they stopped the Pride Parade. They had demands about improving access to American Sign Language at the Pride Parade. They had a demand about bringing back the South Asian stage that used to be a part of Pride and had been defunded and other cultural stages that Pride used to fund or should be funding. They fought for that. They fought for more black and indigenous representation on Pride's leadership. Um, They were fighting for the continued funding of the largest black party within Pride, Blockarama. Yeah. They had a huge life, like larger than life-size scroll, Vish. And they wrote down these things that I'm telling to you right now and that I say in the book on a huge scroll so that the media and everyone there could see why they were stopping the parade. And then they handed out leaflets saying the exact same thing. Right. But all people could focus on was a demand to get the police out of the parade. And they took that as the one of these nine demands, the media, the public, everybody, and just ran with it and said, that's what these guys want. And we're making it about this because it's so much easier than to oppose them, to criticize them, to say how stupid and irresponsible they are, and to erase what this is actually about. I mean, I try to demonstrate how long, you know, I'm going back about 40 years and saying... This is the history of black, queer, and trans people doing the work for their communities, um, doing work around social supports, doing work fighting against the AIDS epidemic, right? Mm -hmm. And then this is how those people were also like, you know, we're also part of this pride community, and you don't seem white people to recognize that. 
why don't we make some changes to the way that you're doing this celebration? I mean, this has been happening for decades. Yeah, yeah. And black people have been contributing to this celebration for decades and pointing out the ways that they're still kind of kept on the margins. And and so after decades of public meetings, of organizing, of petitions, of advocacy, of meetings and, and conversations and all the things that white people think that was supposed to happen before that parade got stopped. Well, here they all are in a chapter of a book and our media just said, you guys hate the police. Now, um, if black, queer and trans people hate the police, they're justified in doing so. And again, this mm-hmm. is the ahistorical is that like the media, if you saw interviews I remember a particular interview with Alexandria Williams on CBC, one of the co-founders of Black Lives Matter Toronto, and she was interviewing right after the demonstration. And the reporter who was asking her questions was interrogating her. It wasn't an interview. Mm -hmm. It was a how dare you do this? Who do you, black person, think you are interrupting the, the pride parade? Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. As if black people are not queer and trans and have no place there as if they were and literally we saw this in the days afterwards is that there were all these very um siloed and like atomizing takes where black people are doing something to the lgbtq community because somehow black people are not lgbtq i guess but then they found police officers who are black and uh, and gay and put their opinions in the newspapers and said you see yeah. This is what's really representative of these communities is that like a police officer speaks now for black, queer and trans people like this is what our society does. And I it's a great honor to be able to write a chapter of a book to again, go back and do the history. I learned so much about pride and black influence in pride myself. Yeah, I learned a lot about the history of violence against queer and trans people in general in this province and in this country. And I shared with people that only a couple of months after the Pride Parade and Black Lives Matter Toronto's, you know, so-called controversial disruption, we learned about an undercover police operation to catch men hooking up in a park. Right. So (laughs) you started by asking me about efficacy and their demonstration in my eyes was extremely effective. But just for history's sake and for the sake of the conversation we're having, I must point out that Canada will never remember 
that demonstration as being effective because it doesn't want to. It was heard around the world and therefore by definition it was effective. But Canada wants to dampen the message and say it was just a bunch of irresponsible black people who were trying to stop someone else's celebration from happening because they're jealous or they're selfish or they're... And, and Canada has been working very hard to try and cement that as being the history of that event when, of course, it is so much more. Yeah, there's a lot of scrutiny of narratives, how they're deployed, why they're deployed the way they are. I mean, you're talking about the complicity of between the media and the police to tell certain stories a certain way. And you have firsthand experience with this, as you talk about in the book, because you were a columnist for the Toronto Star. You were attending uh, and disrupting meetings among the police, public meetings. And, and I, I, I attended and disrupted one public meeting. One public meeting. Well, actually, though, but how many times, I'm trying to think here, in the book you are detained or arrested. Yeah, yeah, but so then after I don't have the you know, um, yoke of the Toronto star around me, I just start doing it more. Right. right. So right. I, I, I have, you know, demonstrated many, many times and I have been forceful in my public demonstrations as I think anybody who believes in what they're doing should be. But yeah, I, I had a history of activism, which is probably why the Toronto star recruited me. Right. And, um, then they would ultimately, yes, turn around and, ask me why I was being so disruptive. It was against their company policy for you to, to do such things, they said. Well, they, yeah. They, they That's what they that. said. <laughs> Again, I, I, would yeah. ar- I would argue uh, this is just because you were disrupting that complicit relationship is, is what I would argue um, on one hand. I'm actually, I want to ask you a personal question about this because you are a known entity now to the police, uh, yeah. a, a violent organization towards black people, towards more people than maybe we really realize. As a as a guy, as a person, as a person doing what you do, what is your personal safety situation exactly? How safe do you feel being this outspoken? I know it needs to be done, but as a, someone who's come to know you a little bit, I am also concerned for you, if that makes any sense. And, and based on the examples that you enumerate in this book, I have every right and reason to be. How do you deal with this? Well, I'm really lucky because I have black people and they are my greatest protection, Mm. my greatest refuge. And, you know, we're fighting for our collective liberation. And so we kind of, we know what time it is. And, you know, I can't go anywhere in this country anymore without meeting black people who say, thank you for the work that you're doing. Mm -hmm. Okay. So that's really more than enough of uh, an impetus for me to um, keep going, regardless of the dangers of the work. Um, We are, the thing is, right, we're in a situation where we face peril if we speak up and we face peril if we don't speak up. So we have to make a choice about how, as my friend has said, you know, like this might sound grim to people, but you know, when you're put into this kind of situation of you're going to die quietly or you're going to die organizing and fighting and demanding change, 
you have to decide which way you want to die. Mm-hmm. You can flip that and say it another way and say, we have to decide how we want to live in this world while we have time, while we are alive. How is it that we want to live? And thankfully, I have my health. You know, um, I'm still pretty young. And I can use the the gifts and the talents that I have in this world and try and force and push and everything. But we are all at, at risk, even when we're not doing that. And that's the thing is that, like, we are brought into this struggle. Uh, we are politicized and we are radicalized because as we get older in Canada we learn that all of these myths that the white supremacist state has created to pacify us are actually not true, that yeah. things aren't better here, that we are not safe here, that Canadians don't really actually want a liberated, educated, informed, healthy black population because they think that that will be at their expense. Everything that's supposed to ameliorate black life in Canada is set up as being against the government against white people against the state so when i don't want police coming into our communities that's seen as being a threat to white people's safety when i don't want black kids getting kicked out of school that is presented in my country as then that'll be a threat to the white kids education because the black kids will disrupt them Mm -hmm. it's always set up like this and we are under siege every day so it is dangerous to fight back but we will absolutely perish if we don't right and um Sometimes you trade forms of scrutiny or surveillance for other forms. I used to get stopped on the street a lot, and I noticed that people read my work, ask me, yeah, so since you've been writing a lot about being stopped and carted by the police, do they still do that to you? And I feel like that misses the point, because it's not really about whether they do it to me. It's the fact that that's how they treat black people. It's the fact they do it at all, yeah. Right. It's yeah. not interrogating my personal experience to be like, hey, how's that going? Since you've spoken out against police brutality, have they, you know, backed off a little bit? <laughs> like, that's not the point. Right. But I don't actually experience that kind of police surveillance as much now at this stage in my life as I did when I lived closer to downtown, you know, 15 years ago when there were a lot of gun murders happening the summers the first couple of summers that I was here and I was living and walking all the time in certain areas of downtown where really black people were like, we, they were just like, if you're here, we're going to get you. We're going to stop you. We're going to document you. We're going to ask you questions. That's where I was living and that's where the climate was. And I get stopped a lot less relative to that now, but CBC wrote a story three years ago now um, showing how the police are surveilling me how the police are surveilling members of Black Lives Matter Toronto. Hmm. So I don't get stopped on the street as much, but you know, now I have to wonder what other kinds of ways that the police are documenting me and following me hmm. and watching me. So I, I you know, you, you're never safe. Yeah. Who wants to be the person draped up on the street and pulled over by the police when they're just walking home, just going to work? I wasn't safe when that was me. And now that I speak out, I'm, I'm, I'm at risk in a different way. So the state is working constantly. White supremacy is working constantly to shut black people up, to make us too afraid to fight back. Yeah. And we have to find some ways to resist despite all of these dangers. Yeah. I want to return to a question that I parked uh, a while ago now in terms of who this book was written for, because within what you were just saying, you suggested that some Canadians don't want to hear these stories. And yet you mentioned 
white teachers in particular coming up to you and and, and making a, a point of attending your your reading appearances and, and, and speaking with you, that is a positive sign, I assume. That is a sign that educators want to teach children about what's really happening. Would you agree? I, I do. I think it's a sign that uh, I, I am blessed to have built up an audience over the years of doing this work and that my audience, you know, I'm, I'm finding them as I've been going out on tour. And that I tell you that is like such a beautiful thing, Vish. Like, I love that part of this. Yeah. And I'm very grateful for it. And I do really hope that people who are educators take this book and share it. And obviously, I think that that would be a positive thing. But you know what else? Uh, all the education in the world, all the information in the world is not enough on its own to make change. Um, people actually have to be willing to do something about what they're seeing around them. And I am not a truth will set us free kind of person. The truth will not set us free, not on its own. Hmm. And and this is one of the great mythologies of the Western world, is that we are on this train towards uh, just this natural progression of equality and freedom and human rights for everybody. And you almost don't have to do anything. You're just like on a self-propelling ride. Yeah. And you just kind of have to sit there and things just automatically get better because we all have love in our hearts. And yeah, maybe we've read a couple of books. So, oh, I know about the black struggle. So what? What are you doing? What are you actually doing? Because our country also makes white people believe that they can change things without any real risk to themselves. Right. Without having to make themselves uncomfortable without having to challenge people in their own families, people in their workplaces, without having to take any risks. They believe that just maybe knowing about it and thinking the right things about it is their responsibility and their mission. And uh, if that's what they think, then the struggle for black life is going to continue because, um, A, it is not up to black people. And I also talk a little bit about indigenous struggles in this book. Yeah, I believe in black and indigenous solidarity, but it is not our job to dismantle white supremacy at the cost of facing up against the police, facing up against all of the people in our workplaces and losing our jobs, facing up against people in society and being outcast socially. It is not our responsibility to undo what's been done to us. Um, settler colonialism and, and, and all of its attendant harms. That's the job of the white people who are currently benefiting from it. So what, and, what, so what, on that note, what, yeah. what, how do you put pressure on the powers that are causing these problems, so to speak, as as just a, a person trying to live their life <laughs> and 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 trying to engage with these issues in a, in a way that uh, will have like I, we've used the word efficacy a few times, but yeah, how do you mm -hmm. actually affect this change as a person who? I understand what you're saying. It's one thing to be a teacher, to come to your talks, to share your book, maybe teach your yep. book. Yep. But, but then after that, what is the call to action exactly? What What do we do? Um. Well, I don't ask me. I mean, <laughs> it's no, a, really, it's though. a big question. Really, yeah, yeah. But, well, but 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 this is the thing: is that I I can't really accept responsibility for answering that question for people. Hmm. It is a very irresponsible thing to say. You know, 10 minutes ago, I didn't know anything about this reality of your community, Desmond. But now that I know, you have to tell me what to do in order to fix it. Like, what in the world is that? 
you haven't been listening to us for 300 years and now you're pretending that you're just going to listen if I, okay, well, here's my advice to everybody who's listening to this conversation if you want to know what to do. Um, um, give up all of your possessions. Give up all of your worldly uh, selfish pleasures and fight every day for the emancipation of black people even if it costs you your life. Hmm. How does that sound? Are you going to do it? Because I told you to? It's, it sounds pretty tough, yeah. Yeah, it sounds sounds like our lives every day as black people, though. It sounds like it sounds like literally like, you know, I talk about women in this book fighting for their children's education at school and being publicly vilified in the media. Because if your black child is having a problem, it's probably because you're a bad parent. And and so literally just like the risk of being like my child's facing discrimination at school I'd better speak out for them can cost you everything. The society can take every piece of dignity and opportunity away from you for standing up for your own children on the basis of racial discrimination. So we have to risk everything in order to be black and to survive. And like I said, people want to believe that supporting us is maybe like, you know, a side venture, a volunteer thing, a Twitter to retweet every now and then. No. Yeah. Nah, your liberation as a white person or as an other white adjacent person is wrapped up in my liberation as a black person. Uh, you are not free unless I am. Hmm. And so people have to keep that in mind when they ask, what do I do, Desmond? What do I do, black person who has unsettled me? or made me think differently. Now give me the information and quell my anxiety because this seems really heavy and difficult. Tell me what I should do or how I should feel better about this struggle that you've um, put forward. That is not my job. And really, if I was a cartoonist, Vish, Mm -hmm. I would draw a cartoon of a black person just barely treading water in a moving body of water in a moving river or something and a white person standing there on the shore saying, how can I be an ally to you? (laughs) You know, because this is, this is what, like, what do you think? Yeah. If you were me, what would you want someone to do? I don't have to tell you, but you have to do that work because I, me telling you is like, like pretend that you listen to black people. (laughs) You don't. So don't, don't pretend that you're going to listen to me now because the work is a lot harder and getting to the place where you're ready to take risks, where you're ready to act in service of other people's freedom, even if it costs you something, that's work. It doesn't come from reading a book or having a conversation with somebody. You got to do the work inside yourself hmm. to be prepared to do what we're doing or, or, or what we're talking about or what we're saying that we need as black people. It's very astutely put, and I appreciate that perspective. Um, and it'll be a hard one for a lot of us to hear, but I think, uh, as I say, it's, I appreciate what you're saying and, and I thank you for saying it. And speaking of next steps, you've written this book. Uh, what is next for you? Do you have a plan at this point? No. Um, I, this was never part of the plan to begin with, man. Um, the, the book's called the skin we're in because, you know, five years ago I, Um, had come back from Ferguson, Missouri, where I was documenting the killing of Mike Brown by a police officer named Darren Wilson Mm -hmm. and the 
a failure of the justice system in the United States in Missouri to even have a trial for that officer and the incredible, incredible black organizing and resisting in Ferguson and in the surrounding St. Louis area as the literal military of the United States went and put black people on siege in this majority white town of Ferguson. I was there for a week. I saw the, you know, the creation of Black Lives Matter Toronto from my hotel room in, in, in St. Louis watching as thousands of people came out in a solidarity demonstration for Mike Brown, but we're also talking about Jermaine Carby, a black man who had been killed by the Peel Regional Police um, mm. earlier in uh, 2014. And Black Lives Matter Toronto formed that week and were like, we need to talk about things that are happening here as well. And it was like, I, I saw the demonstration on a news clip from my hotel room in the United States and I was just like, oh my God. Like this is happening in my city right now while I'm yeah. here. This is this is like this is truly unbelievable. And I was so inspired and re-energized to come home and keep doing that kind of work. So Toronto Life asked me to write a piece and I it ended up being entitled The Skin I'm in. It was about my own in- experiences with racial profiling. And this book comes out of that because after I wrote that piece and it made a lot of waves, I was asked to join the Toronto Star. You know, I, I, I joined uh, a radio program and I also got offered to write a book. Mm-hmm. And uh, none of this was part of my plan. Um, hmm. I'm extremely grateful to Doubleday Books because when I didn't know what the book was going to be when they approached me and I said, yes, I asked for time and they gave it to me. And that's why I, you know, I signed this deal in 2015, but the book's only come out in the last month because I needed the time to figure out what this was going to be and and to really speak properly about this topic, document properly. It was a great, great honor to get to write this book. And, you know, I looked yesterday, this is the second week in a row now after the book being out, I guess this is the fourth week the book's been out and it is the number one nonfiction book by a Canadian author in this country right now yeah, congr- for the second week in a row. Congratulations. That's incredible. Thank you. It's like, dude, I'm living a dream right now <laughs> because none of this was actually part of my plan. Um, I couldn't begin to tell you what's going to happen next. Okay. Um, except, except I've been very focused on public transit in Toronto Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It, it is another one of these places, you know, I talk about education, I talk about child welfare in the book, I talk about cultural institutions, and how they deal with black people. I talk about the police. But uh, this transit issue, especially in Toronto, has become a major site of repression of black people and, and an area where we have to fight black back because transit in Toronto is increasingly unaffordable and that impacts black people disproportionately because we are disproportionately poor. Mm -hmm. And the city's response to a system that people can't afford and the city's fear that people are trying to ride for free is now to militarize the transit system. And we already know what kind of impacts that's going to have for black life. I was, so, so I get this. 
I've been thinking about wanting to come home back to Toronto after the tour and start working more on this issue of, of, of the fair inspectors and this militarization of our system instead of funding public transit and making it affordable for everybody. And I, I'm walking to an interview yesterday and I see a friend of mine, Butterfly Gopal, who's in the book, who I talk about fighting very hard in the time of um, getting the um, Toronto police out of the Toronto district school board, right? The SRO program in the November chapter, right? I mean, butterflies in my book. I just literally ran into her yesterday on the street going to my interview and uh, she says, Oh, I'm going to city hall. They're talking about fair inspectors today. I said, okay, Oh, I'll pop through. You know, I had a conversation with one of the commissioners on the, on the TTC, a white woman, who was saying that she's interested in waiting for more data to find out if there's really discrimination against black people on the TTC. <laughs> we talked about a lot in this conversation, erasure, right? And yeah. we talked about the kind of um, the selective memory yeah. and the ahistoricism. So this white woman, I actually asked her if she read a piece by a Canadian Toronto Star journalist named Ben Spur last year where he outlines, using the TTC's own data, how they disproportionately question black people who are not under arrest and who are not doing anything. Yeah. And she says, oh, yeah, I read that. It's like, right, but now, now you need more information to prove that what you read there was actually the reality because you don't accept the reality that that's what you do to us. Right. And, and you want more data collection, which actually means... Let's wait and see if more black people are harmed by the system before we conclude that that's actually what's happening. Mm -hmm. So on our backs, you would like to continue. And, th and this is one of the people who's making decisions at the TTC and standing in a hallway talking to me with a very silly look on her face, I must say, mm. because she's not used to being confronted and being held accountable by a black person saying, why are you doing this to us? Um, I just happened to walk into that situation yesterday uh, as a kind of demonstration of how all around us all the time, these things are. And um, I'm very determined to expose further what the TTC is doing, not just to black people, but to the homeless people living with mental health issues who of course also may be black. There's a lot of intersections here. Yeah. What the police, uh, uh, what the policing of transit is doing to queer people who rely on city services. We're going to expose that and we have to organize around it as well. Because if we don't, most of this uh, fair inspection and fair enforcement is happening in the downtown core. Toronto is the weirdest city in the world, okay? Toronto has become way more black and brown in the last 30 years. But as that's been going on, the downtown core, the heart of Toronto, the economic and financial center of Toronto, has just gotten more and more and more white. Yeah. And I would honestly just invite people to like take a soak in the bathtub and think about that. How, how is that possible? We call that multiculturalism. It's called segregation. Yeah. And when you then put in, John Tory's plan now is for dozens, the mayor of Toronto, John Tory, his plan is for dozens of more fair inspectors than we already have to further crack down, particularly in the downtown core on people who are riding without paying the fare. So there's just this exodus. 
of blackness. There's this exodus and saying, we don't want you here. Just as all of the housing developments that used to have a significant portion of black people are being so-called revitalized now. And everybody's being forced out of those housing developments, which were never maintained. And that's how the city just keeps getting more and more and more white. And now it's like, now if we see you on the transit system, we're going to make sure you paid the fare black people, any way that we can get you out of the downtown core, which is now the white playground of the city of Toronto, we will do that. We have to fight back. We have to fight back against these things. Yeah. And I am very motivated to make that, you know, a bigger part of my life in the next little while. I know I'm not alone in feeling appreciative of this work that you do, Desmond, and I want to ask you if people want to engage with what you're talking about and uh, potentially even um, make some positive change themselves, however they can, what's the best way to engage with you uh, these days, uh, uh, to follow you, so to speak, or to keep, uh, keep up with what you're up to? Yeah, well, for, thank you for asking. And, and first of all, I just really ask every single person who's listening to buy the book. Yeah. Um, I am a freelance journalist. I've been working for 10 years. And I cannot survive in the Canadian mainstream because nobody really wants to put a ring on this finger. So <laughs> it's extremely important for me. Nah, they'll date you, man. Yeah. That's the, that's a fact. You could get a few dates here and there. Sometimes even maybe a couple of good ones, but nobody's putting a ring on your finger. Right. Single ladies and, forever. I understand. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> so it's actually very important for my, um, my life and, and for me being able to continue doing this work that people support this book. They are. I am thrilled about that. Please keep going. Recommend this book to your friends. Recommend it at school. That will really, really help me. And then, um, you know, I'm on Twitter all the time. Too much. Uh, my Twitter handle is Desmond Cole. And uh, I'm not really sure what form it's going to take, but I am hoping to do my own more consistent media work, um, independent media work in the future. I have a blog called Cole's Notes, C-O-L-E apostrophe S, Notes, mm-hmm. by Desmond Cole. And yeah, I, I, I think it's been pretty hard to find me in some capacity in the last couple of years because I've been writing this book. Mm-hmm. I've been producing a lot of other stuff for a lot of other outlets. And I want to I definitely increase the kind of media writing, content creating work that I do in the future. So if people follow me on Twitter, it's probably the safest way to figure out what I'm, what I'm up to and okay. if people want to get in touch. Okay. Well, Desmond, uh, I thank you for this. The book is called The Skin We're In, A Year of Black Resistance and Power. It is out via Doubleday Canada, and people can learn more about it at uh, penguinrandomhouse.ca or ask your local library to shelve it and go to your local bookstore and pick it up. Uh, please do that. It's a wonderful book. It's a harrowing book, but it's a very important and significant book. Desmond, thank you so much for your time today, for writing this book, and for your time today. I always appreciate speaking with you, and I wish you the best of luck with everything going forward. Likewise, Vish. It's lovely to speak with you, and thank you for doing this.
Thank you very much to Desmond Cole, and thank you very much to you for listening to Desmond Cole on this, the 529th episode of Creative Control, which is part of the Entertainment One Podcast Network and is available on all iOS and Android platforms and on Spotify, YouTube, Audio Boom, everything. Creative Control is on all of the platforms, all of the podcast playback things, so please seek it out on the one you like best. It's there for you, Creative Control. If you can't find an episode that you're looking for, or if you want to learn more about me and sign up for my a rather semi-regularly scheduled newsletter, please visit my website, vishkana.com. You can like Creative Control on Facebook and follow the show's exploits there. Uh, you can also follow the show on Twitter, at vishcreative, or follow me directly, at vishkana. Also, please visit patreon.com slash Control to make a flexible monthly donation to keep this podcast going. There is a $6 or more tier now, which get, gets you exclusive content. So uh, please consider donating to Creative Control at patreon.com slash Control. Thanks, as always, to Pizza Trocadero, The Bookshelf, Planet Bean Coffee, and Granddad's Donuts for their in-kind support for this show. Uh, thanks, as always, to my friend Jim Guthrie for letting me use some music of his on this show. And uh, you can learn more about Jim at jimguthrie.org. And finally, thank you very much again for listening to this episode with Desmond Cole and uh, perhaps checking out the back catalog of episodes, uh, which are readily available uh, on all of the things I mentioned earlier. And perhaps even you, you might want to subscribe to the show or suggest to your friends that they might like the show and, and may wish to subscribe to it as well. Then they'll keep tabs on it and you'll all have little conversations about the show. It'll be great. It'll be fun. It'll be fun, I think. Anyway, thank you very much. I will talk to you very soon. Bye for now. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.